of all the pictures you've seen for Missions Week, of all the stuff on Twitter and Facebook and the videos we're in, how many of you are with me? And you say the best picture that was captured or piece of video captured during Missions Week was Pastor Sean standing in the middle of that garden with his cell phone. How did you not love that? Like that was a gift from God. Amen. What a great whoever caught that God's favors on you. I just want to share that. So, well, it has been a great week. Uh, Gage Missions Week. We've been challenged and, and we've said this. We don't want just a traditional missions conference where you just come in and hear people speak about missions. We want you to be on mission this week. And so we've had lots of opportunities throughout the week, uh, just uh, partnerships, building relationships, serving people, meeting needs uh, so that we can in the future share Christ with these new relationships. And so it has been a great time. Last week, Pastor South Severn was with us and did an outstanding job. And then this morning, we have a great privilege of hosting Dr. Emir Kaner with us this week. And so uh, Dr. Kaner has been a pastor, an apologist. He's debated. Uh, he's worked in higher education. Education. Uh, he's now the president of Truett McConnell College in Georgia, and uh, he's also written literally dozens of books. And uh, Dr. Kanner was with us about eight years ago at one of the GIC celebrations. Some of you were around when the church uh, did some of those. And so when we sat down as a staff and last year began to plan out our missions week, I said, hey, who are some speakers in the past that you would love to have back? And we just did a great job. I had a heart for the Lord and for the cause and for missions. And uh, one name came to the top. It was Dr. Emir Kanner. And so, Liberty Heights Church, would you make welcome this morning, Dr. Emir Kanner. Well, with the Bible in your hand, I invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In many ways, I am home. I'm Ohio born and bred. And uh, graduated from Gahanna Lincoln High School up in the Columbus area. Uh, much of my heart is in Ohio, uh, but God has chosen to move this Yankee south. Um, and it's been a fascinating ride as we've done so. Um, I want to encourage you because, you know, six, well, now eight years ago, I was here. Uh, things have changed just a little bit. At the time, I was in Texas. Uh, at Southwestern Seminary, I'm now in North Georgia in the mountains of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, and um, back eight years ago, I had hair. I had a lot of hair. didn't have all my hair. Uh, it was thinning. And by the time I went to Georgia, it was it was anorexic. It was it was out there. And and I was uh, standing in the mirror just uh, ready. I had a shave in my hand, a razor in my hand. And I didn't have it for my head. I had it. Because my beard, I had it because there are two types of men in this world, gentlemen, those with beards and women. And so I have this razor, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm noticing that this river is connecting with a lake back here. Some of you gentlemen will know this. You have to make a decision in life, shave or comb over, not doing a comb over. But I didn't think about it and just had to raise it. My wife walked by, being the Barnabas she is. She looked at the razor, looked at my head and said, you might as well. And this is the result. Now, just a few years later, I am looking more like the love child between a Saudi woman and Mr. Clean than uh, what I used to look like eight years ago. But I love it. My heart is in missions. That's uh, where I live and breathe. That's where... My greatest passion is Truett McConnell College, where I serve. Every student has to do a Great Commission minor. Every student has to go on a mission trip 
or do a missions class where we do trips in the Atlanta, local Atlanta area where there are 80,000 Muslims and thousands of Buddhists and Hindus and we want to reach them and so forth. I, I want to remind you as I begin this morning, we're about to read that the theme of a missions week, I think, is this. If you're going to reach this generation, you've got to teach this generation. If you're going to reach this generation, you've got to teach this generation. One of the greatest phone calls I ever got was I was preaching up at a church in, in Kentucky. It's uh, May of 2010. And I find out my son gets on the phone and said, hey, Dad, he's seven at the time. He said, uh, I just got saved. My wife led him to Christ. And, and I was thrilled, you know, emotional dad's dream of the day where either they or uh, their, their wife leads him to Christ. And my son's telling me Jesus just changed my life. Very young age, seven. So I get home. I listen to his story. It was amazing how God transformed. And I said, now, John Mark, what do you want to do? What's next for you, do you think? How, how, how can I help you? He said, well, dad, um, you go to Thailand a lot. I said, yeah, I've been on five trips to Thailand on a mission trip. He said, I'm going with you next time. Now, notice what the seven year old didn't say was, I'd like to go with you. His first part is he said, Dad, you go on mission trips. You're always talking about mission trips. I'm going with you. No questions asked. I didn't want to damper him. And so we, we had a heart. We've been witnessing to a young man who was a Buddhist monk for more than a decade and I could never get to him. And so I decided, okay, John Mark, you'll be eight at the time and I'm going to go ahead and take you. We put a picture of this Buddhist monk right by my son's bed. Every night we prayed for this monk. God save him. God save him. God save him. Next summer comes nine months later and we're on a plane heading towards Chiang Mai, Thailand. I didn't know how the Lord was going to work. I prepared my son the best I could in my feeble way. We hit the ground. We go to the monastery where I'm praying this man has not left yet, but he's still there. Walks in the door and there he is. Now, there are hundreds of monks there. It's attached to university. I mean, it is sprawling yet right in front of us. John Mark goes up and hugs him. You're not supposed to touch a Buddhist monk. You can get away with it if you're eight years old, though. The monk was stunned and sort of embarrassed a bit because he was touched. And so they sat down. He gruffly looked at my eight-year-old boy and he said, what do you want to ask me? It's pretty gruff. John Mark looked around the room and it was a room probably about two-thirds of the size. And there were hundreds of golden Leda Buddhas around him. John Mark looked down, composed himself and looked up and he said, what do you worship? That's the question of life. I knew at that point God was fully in control. I just sort of stepped back and watched. And Kavi, the, the Buddhist monk, goes, John Mark, I worship myself. Buddhism teaches self-enlightenment. I worship myself. Now my son has my sarcasm. It's genetic. It's in the DNA. And he looks and he says, well, that's at least breaking one commandment. Well, now we have a conversation on our hands. And he says, don't you understand the Buddha says there are many ways to heaven? John Mark says, don't you understand? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. I sat and watched. We witnessed that man two hours a day for two weeks, three nights a week. Twelve hours, John Mark sat with him, played with him, listened to him, witnessed to him. Finally, last night, we couldn't get to him. And I thought, God, what are you doing? And John Mark started talking and we answers back. He says, you know, John Mark... You prayed for me every day for a year. I wonder, 
could you teach me to pray like that? He says, in fact, I'd like to study about Jesus. I don't want to hear it from Buddhist monks. I'd like to hear it from Christians. Do you know of any Christian college where I can go and study? Now, they knew my name, but I didn't tell them everything about myself and the background and so forth. And I just smiled. And John Mark looked at me. I said, Mr. Wee, this is your day. God's providence this day. I'll tell you what, if you just get your flight over there, you can study at True McConnell College. Enter, enroll as a Christian study student just for a semester. You'll be our guest. And that next January, which is now just about a year ago, he entered in True McConnell College as a student of Christian studies. He kept his orange robe. Uh, he wore it all around campus, cold in January, right? And he's wearing an orange robe. I said, "We, I got to tell you, you're in the mountains of North Georgia. The only guys wearing orange right now are shooting things like deer. But he wore it. He wanted to tell people who he was. You know, at the end of his semester, he took off his robe. And he said, I can no longer be a monk. But he never accepted Christ. And he walked away into the world. And do you know, our kids, he, he, he literally became sort of like a, an older brother. So every Sunday, our kids will still come to the altar at our home church and they'll still pray for him and they won't give up on him because they know as long as there's a breath in the body, there's hope for the soul. There's an old joke in missions. There are those who have passports and those who are backslidden. That you could go, whether go is right here in our community or whether here means across the world. But we're all called to go to all of those places, short term, long term, wherever that goes. But what's going to stop you from going on mission and ministry to serve others? What's going to stop you from reaching out in service, speaking out in faith? What will stop you more than anything is the weariness of the world. The key, I think to raising up a generation that will follow and surrender. Remember, a generation defined meaning whether you're 8 or 80. This generation's got to raise up, but it will not raise up until we are refreshed. Until we come to a place where God has so worked and moved in our lives that we cannot but get out these doors and go, whether it's the neighbor that's never heard Jesus, it's right beside you and you never shared Christ, whether it's across the world and God says, I want you to go to Guatemala, I want you to go to Boston, I want you to go to Detroit, I want you to go. That won't happen in my life and that won't happen in your life until the word refreshed happens. And that's where we find ourselves today in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verses 13 and following. So read with me. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and following. says, watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanos. That is the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. You also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanos, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. And he finishes up this book, and here's what he says. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Refreshment isn't something that's uncommon in the New Testament. In fact, every one of us here who has tasted of the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved knows refreshment. It's how Jesus calls us. Matthew chapter 11. Here's how he says it. Come unto me, all you who are weary, 
tired, heavy laden, burdened, and I will give you rest. It's the same word. I will give you refreshment. And then our end goal for life is to take that refreshment He has given us and try to find others who do not have it. That's what missions, that's what ministry is. That's everything from working at a homeless shelter and feeding them to going on a mission trip and knocking door to door. Everything in between. It is a lifestyle of speaking and living Christ. It is a consistent, dynamic, powerful way that satisfies the soul and nothing else will satisfy it. Other things can satisfy you. But only the Great Commission is great enough to satisfy the soul in such a way. Refreshment is what the Corinthian church needed. These people were worn down. If you look at the difference between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you'll see it. 1 Corinthians, they're worn out. For all sorts of myriad of reasons, they're no longer refreshed. And you could take just basically a bird's eye view, a microcosm of each chapter, and you'll see them as they were worn out. And chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians, these are selfish people at this point. They're fighting with each other. I'm a Paul. I'm a Paulus. And they've got a selfishness to them. Chapters 3 and 4, they have a mind of the world, no longer the mind of Christ. And because of those two things, selfishness and worldliness, they're no longer refreshed. They're in the world. They're of the world. And they're literally seemingly defeated. And you can see the defeat because after that, they flesh it out. Chapter five, they fall into immorality. Chapter six, they start suing each other. Chapter seven, they start divorcing each other. Chapters eight and nine, their minds have become so desensitized, they don't even care. Chapter 10, some of them fall into idolatry. Chapter 11, they flippantly take the Lord's Supper as if it can just be taken that way. Chapters 12 through 14, they take these spiritual gifts that God has given each of them And they paganize it. They make it look like the world. But Paul doesn't give up on them. Instead, the greatest chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, is written. And oh, death, where is your sting? So much so that by 1 Corinthians 16, you have the encouragement of Paul. Mark it down. Refreshment comes when God encourages your soul, convicts your spirit, And speaks to you. So much so that 2 Corinthians, you see the most generous church in the New Testament. They give out not only their abundance, but out of their poverty. These same people that seem to have lost their way had gained such momentum because their burden had become released and refreshment had come. So I just want to walk you through. What Paul says are the three steps to finding refreshment. First one found in verse 13. If you look with me in your scripture again. First step to refreshment is to be vigilant, resolute. First step to refreshment is when he says, watch, stand fast in the faith. Simply put, watch is defensive. Stand fast is offensive. Watch is about principle. Stand fast is about passion. Watch means that before you can ever do something for the Lord, your mind, your heart, your soul have to be guarded. Paul said, hold on a second. Step away for just a second, church. Step back and make sure. Are you guarded? Are you watching? Make sure your heart's guarded. Make sure your head's guarded. 
Make sure the deepest fiber of your being is guarded because the devil will attack and he will attack voraciously. Watch is defensive. Before you can ever go, first you have to make sure you're settled in your own heart, secure in your own salvation, and sanctified and set apart by him. Watch. So many times I've been in Christian education now for 15 years and I've realized something. Most of the time we say, you know, all of the pagan philosophies of the world were created from the outside. But have you ever realized because we haven't watched our own minds, our own pews, sometimes the worst heresies have come from the inside out because we haven't watched. 1859, Charles Darwin publishes his Origin of Species. Evolution becomes the greatest theory of science now to its day. It has nothing to do with God and everything to do with naturalism. It closes up the universe and randomizes everything as if providence and sovereignty are gone. And it all happened by accident. Charles, what what did you want to be before you became a scientist and a naturalist? He'd tell you, I, I sat in my church and I dreamed of becoming a minister of the gospel. He trained for it. What happened, Charles? His church started to doubt the Bible. By this time, his church started to doubt the very first verse of the Bible that in the beginning God created. They allegorized it. They modernized it. They shifted it around. They compromised it. So much so that Darwin, Darwin wasn't an inventor of evolution. Darwin took what they said and himself went forward with it scientifically. See, it wasn't Darwin from the outside. We birthed Charles Darwin and he came out from the inside. Mom and dad, how important is it that you guard the hearts and souls of your children? Grandma and grandpa, your grandchildren. It is our privilege and responsibility to raise them up in the admonition of the Lord, a heritage of our God. And if we don't, don't be surprised when they become prey to this world. Watch. Vigilance. But not only that, stand fast in the faith. If watch is defensive, stand fast is offensive. If watch is about something we have to guard our own hearts, stand fast means it's not only about principle, it's about passion. Listen, if your faith is not a passionate faith, it is not truly a biblical faith. We are not called to be Stoics that literally become emotionless creatures when we get saved. God saved us heart, mind, and soul. Passion. Any relationship, and most definitely the relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, demands passion for Him. If you don't have passion, your faith will not last. He will keep you. He will sustain you. But your faith will be dreary. Passion. You don't believe me? Any relationship requires it. I've been married almost 14 years. Gentlemen, I dare you to go home today and say, honey, I love you just because I have to. See how long that lasts. See how much passion is in your life after that. Relationship desires passion. I, um, I was almost 30 years old when I met my wife on a mission trip to the Czech Republic. I was standing in the southern part by the Austrian border. I was about to show the Jesus film. I'm supposed to speak. And up comes the translator, who's now my wife. And in biblical terms, she was hot. 
And so my mind lost it. I didn't know what to do. I talked. We, we started a date long term. I went back home to the States. I was teaching at the time. She stayed in the Czech Republic where she was born and raised. We started to write each other. I knew. I knew I wanted to be with her. 4,000 miles away. I was going to ask her to marry me, but look, I was a nerd growing up and never had a date. And the only girls I asked out always said one word, no. So I was going to spend a $1,000 ticket on a no. I'd done that before in high school and I didn't have to pay any money for that. So I want to know, would she marry me? So I did it, ladies, the most romantic way that every girl dreams of by Internet. Yeah. And um, I, I did it formally over there. But I wanted to know would she consider it. So I asked her one night. We were speaking via instant messenger for some of those who are older and remember these things. I said, would you ever consider marrying me? She, she was serious at the time. She goes, you know, I need to talk to the Lord about this and open up his word. I'll be back to you. Click. She went off the Internet. Lord, there are a lot of Bible passages. Some of them don't help me right now. She came back on. She said, God has spoken. I said, wonderful. What has he said? She said, first Samuel chapter one, flip. I mean, I'm there as quick as possible. I said, what did he say? She said, and I'll read verses 16 and 17. My wife's name's Hannah. The character of that story is Hannah. And God says to Hannah, God will give you the petition of your heart. And I knew we were, we were going to spend the rest of our lives together. And her passion just, I was so grateful God didn't give her Matthew 16, 23, get thee behind me, Satan, because you're, you're an offense to me. And I did, I, do you remember, gentlemen, do you remember that your, your, your love matures, which means it should never be less than when it was. You may get caught up in other things, and life may change, but passion must be a part of our lives and must be a part of our faith. That's why all of verse 13, book ends, watch, stand fast. But then he says it's not just merely about vigilance. If you look at the end of verse 13, he, he gives you these other two. In the New King James, it says, be brave, be strong. It's not just vigilance, it's victory. Mark it down. The old King James puts it this way. Quit you like men. It's a great way of saying never give up. God is in control. Don't you dare quit. Paul, who are you talking to? You're talking to a Corinthian church that's out of control. You ever feel that way about the American church? It just seems to be out of control. All sorts of oddities. We've lost many churches to liberalism, but listen, sometimes we lose them to legalism as well. As Vance Hattery says, some people are as straight as a gun barrel, but as empty as one as well. You ever look to the American landscape and go, God, like the Corinthian church, Paul's trying to awaken these people that were in sexual immorality and suing each other and divorcing each other. He says, yeah, here's the key. It's victory. You, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, came in this morning and you already had victory. You know why? We'll celebrate in just a few short weeks the three greatest words we could ever say in English. He is risen. That's your victory. You walked in victorious. You may not have felt victorious. You may not even be living victorious. But victory is based in the character, person, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of what's going on here is following Him fully, devotedly, surrendering your life to Him.
So if you came in here this morning, you said, I'm just tired. Yeah, I get tired too. Man, I, I didn't catch up with my devotion time for a long time. It's not been this week. It's not been for months. Yeah, we've had bouts like that. But victory is yours in the person of Christ. That's His merciful character. So Paul says, look, the church of Corinth was selfish, chapters 1 and 2, but they can be selfless. Paul says it this way, to esteem others better than themselves. It's the very verses right before he says, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. So just like the Corinthian church, they were selfish. He said, be selfless. Don't have the mind of the world, but have the mind of Christ. He speaks it again. He says, all of the defeat that you have can be gone. So that by the end of the book, you can proclaim the gospel of Christ. 1 Corinthians 14, what you and I should do is speak His name. Let me give you a key to missions. I hope you never forget it. If you don't enjoy speaking Christ, you will not live to be missionary. You won't. You, you'll, you'll categorize it. You'll compartmentalize it. You'll shove it off to the side. It'll become a program. The pastor may ask you and you say, I'll go maybe for a week, but it won't be daily. It means I'll go to Guatemala for one week, but I'll come back home and shut up again. It's got to be enjoyable. It's got to be your life. It's got to be what's the great passion inside of you. And by the way, God wants to use you, which means all of you, even your personality. You ever wonder why there's so many weird people and so forth in church? God wants to use us. I was a nerd growing up, but I've always been sarcastic. And I had to get comfortable using my, my sarcasm. When I'm in Thailand, I get to go to Buddhist temples, love doing it, go to go to mosques where I came from, out of Islam. And I went into a mosque and there was a man waiting there. He was the imam. He was a spiritual guy. He was one of the few people there that day. And I came up to him. And he says, hey, what's your name? I said, my name's Amir. He said, oh, it's, that's Arabic for prince. You're a Muslim. I said, no, I was a Muslim. I'm now a Christian. He says, you're going to hell. Now, you're in a mosque in Chiang Mai, Thailand. What do you do? You use a personality. You share Christ. And so I'm sarcastic. I said, well, we have something in common. Why don't we sit down and talk about it? And we did. I'll tell you, I'll never forget that conversation because he smiled. It broke the ice. We sat down and we literally sat down for a couple hours. And I just told him, let me tell you how much Jesus loves you. I can't leave. Let me tell you how Jesus died for you. It was a powerful moment where every one of us can do so. The greatest risk in the world is not taking one. So Paul awakens the slumber of the Corinthian church. He says, vigilance, victory. But then he finishes up and he says, listen, in the end, verse 14 is the bookend of the entire Corinthian church. Let all that you do be done with love. Christianity is not a magic act. It's the simplicity of the gospel. God loves you, died for you, wishes to save you. It is what makes us unique against every other religion in the world. Every, my religion coming out of Islam, here's what it says. Allah loves those who do righteous deeds. But then it says Allah hates sinners. Look at our scripture. God compels His love towards us. That while we were yet sinners, while I was a stain of sin... Christ died for me. 
And if you think you're seeking Him, you have to realize He's first seeking you. The beauty of the Gospel, 1 John 4, 4, is not that I loved Him first, but He first loved us and gave Himself. Gave Himself to be a propitiation of sin. So while I'm wallowing in sin, what I did know is 2,000 years earlier, He already died to seek and save that which is lost. Love. Love may seem like the easiest way out, but anybody who's done it properly knows it's the hardest activity, isn't it? Love. When I went from Ohio, graduated from Hannah Lincoln High School, was going to Ohio State University, and then moved down, moved down south. God called me to pastor alongside of my brother in North Carolina while we were in seminary. And I thought, my goodness, how am I going to be welcomed? Now, listen, I, I was oblivious. I really was. I didn't know I was any different than the southerners. But this church had a, an undercurrent of unconditional love. I just didn't know it. I mean, I've always been enamored with the South. Always. Ever since Daisy Duke and Dukes of Hazard, they had me. They did. They just, uh, Southerners are some of the most innovative people in all the world. There's it, it, two Southerners, I'm sure, that discovered milk. Two men on a cold morning, standing out in a pasture, and they look up and see a cow and they say, Wonder what happens when you squeeze that. Now we have milk all across America. And so I moved down south. They, now, they wouldn't take me hunting. They wouldn't put a gun in a former Muslim's hands. They took me snipe hunting. There with a burl sack. But I fell in love with the people. Because they had this unconditional love. They were, they were willing to accept me. Look, I was different than them. I didn't feel different than them. I might not even look that different than them. But my background was different. My religion was different. My accent was different. My way of life was different. I was always a city slicker. You want to see God's good sense of humor? He put this Ohioan in the mountains of North Georgia. My dad's Turkish. My mother's Swedish. My wife's Czech. And we're in the North Georgian mountains. Because God saved me. I'll never forget, I was, I was just called to be president. They were doing a welcoming session. And I shook a woman's hand and she said, you know, I'm not a fan of this. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I don't like that a Muslim's president of a Christian college. I said, well, ma'am, I'm a Christian now. She says, yeah, that's what you say. And she walked away. That was it. She was a Barnabas. I mean, she was just wonderful. Let all that you do be done with love. And you know what Paul does then for the end of the book? He brags on those that show love. Stephanos. You ever wonder why Stephanos brags so much on Stephanos? Uh, Paul brags on Stephanos. Stephanos is not the first person saved in Corinth. There are at least three people before him. But Stephanos is special to Paul. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 1, Paul baptized Stephanos. Stephanos is special because he invested in the ministry. He did the work of a missionary. He did the work of a minister. Even when Paul was gone, Stephanos was there. And he wasn't alone. Fortunatus and Achaicus, they were with him. How special was Stephanos? Paul even gives a shout out and says, He refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. I want you to hear me with this because the church, the, so many churches in America today have missed this. You and I, as a church of Lord Jesus Christ, 
should be cross-generational. It's not that we need to reach out only to the 20-year-olds or that we have to reach out only to the 70-year-olds. We're supposed to be together. We need each other. Stephanos needed Paul. Paul, believe it or not, needed Stephanos. We need each other. Youth, you need the 50, 60, 70, 80-year-olds. Older generations, seasoned as you are, they need your wisdom. They need you to invest in them. Love on them. To be with them. Not to be pushed to the side and not to push them to the side. We need to be together. It's, uh, it's something we don't always see. Because people, oh, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know my church. You don't know. My church has got a bunch of crazy people in it. You know every church has crazy people? You don't know this? Every people. Liberty Heights has crazy people in church. You know that? Think about it. Put them in your head. You know who they are? If there's no one in your head, it's you. We all have it. We all are eccentric. But your greatest ministry, if Lord tarries is coming, won't happen when you're 20, 30, or 40. I'm 43. Your greatest ministry will happen when you're 50, and you're 60, and you're 70, and you're 80. And the glorious... When I went to Thailand, I took an 86-year-old with me. It was the most amazing time that I learned from him, even though I'd been several times before, just by his heart and wisdom. Let all that you do be done with love. I pray that God will raise up a generation, 8 to 80 years old, that will be missionaries. One of my heroes was a man named Felix Mons. Felix Mons was a man who lived in Zurich, Switzerland, in the 16th century. He's what we now call today an Anabaptist or an Evangelical Baptist. He stood for the faith. He was raised and everybody thought nothing would come of him. He was, to them, the illegitimate son of a Catholic priest. He shouldn't have even been born. He was unnoticeable so much so that we don't know anything about his childhood. He wanders into a church there in Zurich, Switzerland, where there's a Bible study being taught, and he hears the gospel of Christ and gets saved. He takes a bold step. He's baptized publicly. You're not supposed to do that as well. And as he's baptized, he says, you know, it's my call to share the gospel. And so he would go from town to town speaking and sharing the faith. He was an annoyance to the authorities. And they would arrest him. And it is said that there are very few prisons in Zurich and in Switzerland that he did not know. He's in prison and prison. Apparently they said we've had enough of him. We're going to snuff out Felix Mons. And so they literally sign the execution order. And on January the 5th, 1527, nearly 500 years ago, this not yet 27-year-old young man is in a watery dungeon and they escort him out at 3 p.m. As they escort him out, they're going to put him to death by drowning. The crowd is big that day as there are people on both sides of the street and they're parading him around. Some are laughing, some are crying because they are his disciples. And Felix Mons walks through the very cobblestone streets where he used to share the gospel, walks right by the church where he got saved. And as he's walking right down the middle, he hears a voice. It's a feminine voice. It's the voice of his mother. Now, Mom, what would you do if you're watching your boy walk to his death? And as he's walking there, Anna, his mother, whispers to him, You stand firm, Felix. 
He goes past there. and She wants him to hear him a second time. And so she calls out as he's going across a bridge and underneath there is a Lemont River. She says, stand firm, Felix. He crosses over the bridge and to the left where there's a plaque honoring the memory of Felix today. They hoist him into a boat, tie his hands behind his back, and as he's about to be plunged into the water, he hears his mother one last time go, Stand firm, Felix! He's plunged into the water. He's drowned. He's buried in a common burial. And the world hoped that they'd never hear his name again. Yet almost 500 years later, in a place they had not been in Ohio, his name is mentioned. As Paul would say, acknowledge such men. Remember, you will not reach this generation until you teach this generation. And moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas need to be cheerleaders for this generation. Applauding them, investing in them, being a Barnabas to them, loving on them, spending time with them. Being like Anna, just encourage them on. You've got to stand firm. I know the world's against you. I know it seems worse today than it was when I was growing up, but you've got to stand firm. And we're going to be proud of you. We're going to stand with you. I wonder, Mom and Dad and Grandma and Grandpa, if a youth here, one of your sons or daughters, grandchildren, came home today and said, you know, I'm called to be a missionary. Oh. Where do you want to go? I don't know if you're going to like it. It's a, it's a poor country. People call it a closed country, but this is where God's putting me. And I think, I think I don't only just want to go once. I think I want to be there. I think God's telling me to go and to stay. Mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, what would you do? Would you be more likely to go? You know, there are a lot of lost people right here in the Cincinnati and Dayton areas. And there are. Or would you more likely be put your arm around him and say, wherever God's called you, that's where I want you to be. And maybe I'll go with you. Maybe I'll just go once and see, and we can witness together, and I can see how God's working in your life. That is, you not stand behind them, you stand beside them. You not only applaud them, but you invest in them. And as you invest in them, maybe, just maybe, that's what God requires of all of us. You see, it's a lot easier to say, God, take me. But I would submit to you, it's a lot harder to say, God, take my children. I have three of my own. My wife wants a fourth, but I'm 43 years old. I quoted Jesus to her. It is finished. <laughs> but of my children, whatever God wants of them. Whatever God wants. If, if they say, Mom, I, I, you know, Dad, I, I want to go to a mission trip and it's, it's overseas. It's ten days. And uh, what are you going to say? I pray you will be like Paul. And you'll invest in the younger generation. That the world may know Christ. Let's pray together.